Morning, everyone. Thank you so much for your patience. Welcome back to the 11th hour lecture series. I'm Rachel Yoder. I live in Wright in Iowa City, and I'm really honored to be curating the series this year. It's so fun to be able to come every day and listen to a lecture and think about writing, talk about writing. So today, Mika Erkens is a Dutch-American writer who grew up in Los Angeles and the Netherlands. All Ships Follow Me, her first book about her parents' experiences in World War II and the inheritance of war trauma was published this year by Picador, and I might add is a gorgeous book and, I, and a complicated book, and I really recommend you pick it up. Mika earned her MFA in creative nonfiction from the University of Iowa and currently teaches creative writing for the UCLA Extensions Writers Program. Today, Mika will present the lecture, Writing About Family in Nonfiction, which will address the specific difficulties such as ethical considerations, family responses to publications, and discrepancies in memory a writer faces when writing about family and which came up yesterday. So um, it's great to be able to continue the conversation today and get into a little bit more detail even. Uh, please join me in welcoming Mika today. Well, thank you, Rachel, for that lovely introduction. Um, so I'll just jump right in. So the most intimate, powerful, and fraught relationships in our lives are often the ones with the limited Im inner circle that we call family. It makes sense then that writers are repeatedly drawn to these relationships in our work. By definition, nonfiction writers often don't have the luxury of masking the identities of their subjects. And to write about real family relationships means putting our relations on a public stage, sometimes against their will. I won't lie, writing about family can bring real repercussions, including angry backlash from family members, loss of relationships, fear of exposure, feelings of guilt, and more. As a result, the anxiety surrounding this issue is one of the most frequently discussed topics of personal conversation among writers. I'd like to talk today about some of the challenges we face when we write about family and discuss together the potential ways to deal with these challenges. We're doing like a, okay. <laughs> I recently released a book about my parents' experiences as children during World War, I, World War II. The book, All Ships Follow Me, A Family Memoir of War Across Three Continents, is written in three parts. Part one details my father's childhood in the Dutch East Indies, which was then a colony of the Netherlands, and his separation and internment in a men's labor camp at age 11 after the Japanese invaded the country. Part two is about my mother's early childhood in the Netherlands, where her father was a member of the political party that allied itself with the Nazis during World War II. My grandparents were arrested after the war, and my mother and her siblings went to a children's home for the offspring of suspected collaborators. The third part deals, details their marriage, immigration, and the ways in which their respective traumas and shame affected our family. I experienced so many unexpected things, both ne negative and positive, with regards to family during the writing of this book. 
While writing it before its publication, I talked to many other writers who experienced similar things when writing about their families, and even discussed the issue on a panel at a conference with Hope Edelman, Maggie Nelson, and Lucas Mann, who had astute things to say about the subject and from whom I gleaned even more helpful information. I'd like to share both my insight as well as theirs and other writers to help those of you who may be at the beginning of this process anticipate some of these potential issues. These are my parents, this is my father's family, and my mom and her siblings on the other side. So ethical treatment of your subjects. <clears throat> One thing that I think is very important when approaching a project about family or real people is to be ethical in our treatment of them on the page. These are real people's lives, and even if we're angry or people have done hurtful things, I think it behooves us to evaluate our motivations and approach before exposing them to the world. You, as a writer, may have a platform that they don't have, and you have a responsibility, I believe, not only to be honest and brave in your telling your truth about the events as you see them, but also in considering whether or not the details you include serve your underlying purpose. What are you actually essaying, and how do those details serve that purpose? If I'm writing about a sibling, let's say, who stole my boyfriend, and these are not real examples. <laughs> I love my sister. Um, and I'm writing about the trust issues I developed as a result. Is it relevant to the, to the narrative to include that she wet the bed until she was eight years old and gained 100, gained 100 pounds after she went to college? If I'm writing about my father climbing Mount Everest, do I need to include that he cheated on my mother when I was a kid? If the answer is yes, then go ahead and include it and show the relevance after careful consideration. I'm not advocating pulling any punches if the punches are warranted. But if not, consider why you are including it at all and the ethics of doing so. Does the inclusion of those details actually make or break the essay or the book? Once you've published those words and exposed someone to the world, you can't walk it back. You hold a lot of power as a writer of nonfiction. One of my guidelines to keep myself in check according to my own code of ethics is don't write for spectacle. I'm reminded of the memoir Running with Scissors, a book I'm somewhat critical of because I feel it's an example of an author writing about others, real people who have to exist in a world where the public judges them solely for spectacle and fails to put himself under the same scrutiny. Ridiculing the people he lived with as lounging around, eating dog kibble and accidentally killing cats, for example, exposing their vulnerability for spectacle doesn't serve any grand essayistic purpose, to my mind, this is just my interpretation. He doesn't make himself ridiculous in the same way as his subjects, which makes it even more problematic for me. In the end, it seems to serve no deeper purpose than, look at these crazy people I had to live with. Can you believe how ridiculous they are? In fact, the family sued Burroughs for defamation of character after the publication of the book, claiming his depictions were wildly exaggerated. In fiction, these descriptions wouldn't be a major ethical issue, but nonfiction is a whole different beast. I think when we write about real people, especially close family members with whom we have history, we need to be more conscientious about the reasons we expose them. And that's not to say that you shouldn't expose unflattering things about them. Sometimes we need to do so to tell our truth. 
just consider why you are doing so and know that there may be real consequences. So balance the importance with the potential repercussions. One way to balance this kind of exposure is to make yourself as vulnerable as your subjects in your writing. It's a lot easier to expose others than it is yourself, so practice doing the latter. Expose your flaws and weaknesses as much as you expose others. In my book, I expose the issues my father has with hoarding and food, uh, quite unflattering pictures at times, because I see it as necessary to show the effect of trauma he had as a child in the internment camp. But I also tried to make sure to expose my own unattractive neuroses, detailing my own disordered eating and struggle with throwing things away. The best way to gain your reader's trust is by making yourself vulnerable in this way. A writer that admits he or she was jealous of the new baby as a child and stuck him with a safety pin, for example, has earned a lot more trust to criticize the family than one who positions him or herself in the narrative as a flawless victim among perpetrators. I'm having to click on both two things and I'm obviously struggling. So yeah, so expose yourself. I wondered why nobody laughed at that last slide. <laughs> okay. All right, so when including less than flattering information about a family member, consider your motivations, the importance of the information to the broader work, the effect on others, how you position yourself in the piece. Ooh. Okay, I have no idea how to go back. The last one is whether or not you are writing for spectacle or for a deeper purpose. What's that? Oh, yeah, that might be easy. Um, family responses to publication. So one of the hurdles you will probably come up against is your family's response to when you publish things about them or the wider family. Um, the publication of a book or essay involving your family won't just have an effect on your life, it will also impact theirs. And I, and I would advise you to be as honest with them as possible, if you are in contact, that is, prior to publication. I made a point of explaining to my parents that their friends and others in the public would read about them and that this could expose them to criticism or even notoriety if the book did well, and asked how they felt about that. This is just one way. Some people don't want to uh, tell their families until everything's done. It's incredible how unpredictable your family's responses will be to depictions of themselves in events in, and events in which they played a part. The things you expect them to protest, they won't. And they invariably take offense at things you wouldn't have imagined that would be upsetting to them. I wrote many depictions of my father that were less than flattering in my book. He was incredibly gracious, as was my mother, about letting me expose him on the page in such a vulnerable way. And yet, after reading the book, he called me to say he objected to one description of him. You describe me as someone who hammers square pegs into round holes, he said. I don't do that. I hammer round pegs into round holes. I'm a scientist, for God's sakes. 
As o Hope Edelman stated in her list of tips for writing about family in our panel, don't assume anything about what a family member will feel shame for, and don't assume anything about what a family member will object to. So this has borne out in my <laughs> experience. You cannot anticipate how your family will respond to your family memoir or essay. They can and do lead to great rifts in families. Tara Westover's huge bestseller, Educated, currently enjoying popularity, caused a falling out with her family as her parents and some siblings claim that her depictions of her childhood and homeschooling are inaccurate. A friend of mine sent her memoir to her mother and was met with radio silence. She never acknowledged having read the book and did, and did not wish to speak of it. I know another writer whose family stopped speaking to her entirely after she wrote about childhood abuse in the family. I myself chose to share my manuscript with my parents before publishing the book and actually removed broader descriptions of an estranged family member on the advice of the publisher's lawyer because I didn't want any fallout or objections. The lawyer asked if this person was litigious and I said, maybe. <laughs> Her role in the main narrative uh, was minimal, so I removed the few details that I thought she might feel embarrassed about. So you may want to consider doing this as well, depending on your situation and depending on how important the, that detail is to the broader work. I feel blessed to have a family that's been extremely supportive generally, and there was very little that they objected to my sharing, but this is definitely not always the case. The research process itself can also deeply affect family members if you are interviewing them and otherwise involving them in your project. I advise compassion and consideration if you love those that are involved and to be as forthcoming and open to dialogue as possible, especially prior to publication since it will be much more difficult to deal with these issues after publication. My book did affect my parents profoundly. My act of researching brought up long repressed feelings for them. I interviewed them and caused, caused them to examine or reconsider events in their lives, and this could be very painful at times. My mother, for example, was constantly confronted with the fact that her father was on the wrong side during the war and that he and her family were ostracized. When I discovered a photo of his arrest in an archive and asked her to identify him, she fell into a depression and cried for a week. I returned to Indonesia with my father to visit the places of his youth, the first time he had been back in 70 years since leaving on a Red Cross ship. I'm still not sure if that was a good idea, to be honest. I write of the place where he vacationed as a boy, and this is from my book. When he sees the lake, my father's face reveals a disappointment that gnaws at my conscience. He misses the country of his youth. This is not a condition unique to him, certainly, but I brought him here on a journey of nostalgia. Now his memories are being overwritten as he sees firsthand that the Indonesia he once called home, that he still thinks of as a fixed part of his identity, no longer exists. To be honest, I'm still kind of on the fence about whether or not, or not the emotional impact on my parents was positive or negative for the, the whole book. My father, now 87, came to two of my readings and wanted to add some of his own thoughts to the Q&A afterwards, but both times he became too emotional to continue his comments. 
So when you start digging into the family history, it can also upset others who have different ideas from you. Again, my own approach has been to be as forthcoming as early as possible to avoid any unexpected surprise a surprises after publication. And this is predicated on the idea that you have a relationship with, you know, people sometimes write about family members they're estranged from, and that's a whole different thing. Although you may also want to consider letting them know that you're writing about them if you think that's the right so how can the fear of repercussions affect our writing itself about family? One trap that's very easy to fall into when writing about family members, especially if we still have relationships with them, is that it affects how we write. We pull punches, we avoid saying what needs to be said, we skirt around issues and try to hide. We don't want to hurt the people we love, or we don't want to stir up old issues and have conflict. The reader will sense this reluctance. Sometimes I have students who write this way. They try, for example, to explain having had an abusive childhood or a combative relationship with a parent in vague terms that won't offend the parent. Cool. Just an example. Growing up, there were some clashes with my dad. He wasn't always at his best, but he was tired, and it must have been hard to have a house full of kids at the end of a work day. Still, he had a temper, and a lot of un unpleasant things happened, and eventually I decided I should leave, so I moved in with my friend. The reader will see through this kind of softening and obfuscating of the details. When we do this, we aren't actually successfully protecting anyone, and we're not being effective writers. One of the quickest ways to lose your reader's trust is to be coy with them and omit information that they know you are withholding. So you can't ha half write your family narrative and expect to make the same impact, um, as tempting as it is to kind of pull back. It's hard to avoid letting the inner voice poison your writing. My grandfather was an accused Nazi collaborator, and I was told stories about his inconsiderate behavior toward my grandmother. I knew that writing about these things bluntly would hurt his children, my mother, and her siblings. My impulse, so my, my gut, you know, what I wanted to do was to gloss over some of his behavior. But ultimately, I described it fully, despite the fact that it really did make my mother's feelings about her father more painful than they already, already were. I felt it was necessary to provide a full picture to, of a complete human being, the good, the bad, the ugly, insofar as it informed the narrative. We need to avoid writing one-dimensional characters out of deference to family loyalty, I think. The flip side of this is that writing about family out of revenge or an attempt to expose someone without a clear point that you are essaying will result in writing that lacks a focus and goes off on tangents. If your goal is to write a whole book about how selfish your mother was, for example, and that's your one and only goal, your work will fail to find its central through line. It will become a series of anecdotes strung together by nothing more than anger. So memory and history are subjective. Can we ever tell the truth? Another thing that I think we should be aware of is that there is no one singular truth about family events or history. 
Anyone recounting childhood memories with siblings will recognize this, and one sibling can have a wildly different interpretation of the same event than the other. I remember my father, for example, taking us fishing as a fun event, and my brother felt it as obligatory, and this different in perspective colored all of the experiences on that trip for us. So we have the same experiences, two completely different interpretations. Recreating events secondhand from other people's stories is even more problematic, as now we are even further removed. In the book, I try to nod to this. Quote, the facts are still fuzzy for my mother. Memory is malleable. She was very little. She speaks slowly, carefully, reluctantly, unlike my father. I remember things being thrown out of the second story window for us in the five minutes my mother was given to prepare. She was throwing things out of the window. We didn't know they were going to come at all, says my mother now. We weren't prepared for it. I just have this image of things being thrown out of the window, things falling down to us from above. A thick woolen blanket, pillows, sweaters, a bag of toothbrushes. My uncle says this part is not true, but he may have been on the other side of the house, and this is my mother's memory. She says she can still see it. And whether or not it is true, it is her truth and the image that remains with her today. In that passage, there are actually three versions of this event. My mother's vague memory of things falling, my uncle's memory in which that never happened, and my version, which is rendered on the page. I asked and later suggested to my mother that maybe the things were toothbrushes, blankets, or other necessities, um, which she agreed. She was like, yeah, probably. This scene is my imagining of what I was told about a five-year-old's memory. Lucas Mann, uh, who was also on my panel uh, about writing about family, has a beautiful essay, How I Stole My Brother's Death and My Father's Grief, um, which explores the emotional repercussions of writing a memoir about his brother's drug addiction and death. And he has this to say about that. Somewhere toward the end of my manuscript, there's a scene where my father and brother are on, are on a balcony, arguing about my brother's addiction. My father is pushing, trying to understand, and then my brother yells at him, trying to explain. He calls himself a bad guy. He calls himself a thief. This was a story my father told me, and then I put it into scene. My brother back from rehab, sitting slumped in an old sweatshirt, my father above him unsure what to do. And then my brother's words, which I found so poignant when my father fed them to me. Somewhere in all the retelling, they had become unreal or a different kind of real. My brother said them to my father. A decade later, my father said them to me. Then I wrote them, shaped them, and reshaped a scene around their existence. At a certain point, one undefinable, I think, they begin to feel like mine only. So, um, so what do we do about that to uh, get us out of this idea that we have this like definitive, um, you know, truth about our families? Well, one thing I like to do with students um, is to have them do an exercise, um, and that is to write about an experience you had with your family, so or or something that's already existing, a, a passage you've already written um, about your family. 
and then rewrite this experience from the perspective of one of the characters or family members uh, in your first in the first piece, um, and write it in first person, same exact scene, write it in first person from the perspective of the other person. Um, and it seems really simple, but when people do this, it like blows their minds because it it reveals things that they never even considered about the situation and really um, kind of changes their perspective on a lot of things. I think it's a really great exercise. Um, so how do we change the family narrative by writing about it? I touched on it a little there, but um, during the discussion on a panel, on the panel um, that I mentioned, that I took part in, Maggie Nelson brought up the uncomfortable fact that often family histories begin to morph into something else when we write about them. The written version replacing the memory of what really happened for both us, us as writers and the family members we write about. The original memory is lost forever as the written account as we describe it takes its place. More than once now since my book's been published, I've caught my parents bringing up memories that I describe in my book and which I know they didn't tell me. In the passage I mentioned before about the things thrown out of the window to my mother, I am the one who suggested the items might be toothbrushes and blankets. And yet, since writing that down in a book, it has become my mother's memory. One event of a boy who escaped my father's internment camp was only vaguely remembered by my father when I first asked about it. The actual details I learned from a couple of diaries that I read in the archives. When I asked my father if he remembered a visit from the Kempatai who performed a water torture on the boy according to these diaries, he didn't recall having witnessed it. Yet since he read the vivid description of this event in my book, he now says he remembers it happening. There's no way now to know what his true memory is because my book's version has replaced it. So again, um, Lucas Mann, who, and I highly suggest you read that essay because it's really quite um, uh, remarkable. Um, it's hard to distinguish, distinguish what was real and what was remembered and what was written. And it's uncomfortable even to acknowledge that those three are all different things. I don't know how much of this I remember. Some of it I was there for. Some of it I was told about in different ways by different people. And so those expressions, those emotions, were my imagining of someone else's imagination of someone else's life or something like that. Some I'm not sure. It's hard to go back and find the nonfiction that was there, the kernel of what was before the story. I don't know if I remember my brother anymore. That's a loss that I've only just recently become, begun to acknowledge. I think that the act of writing him, of making him, has become the memory. In this way, I've stolen even from myself. Prose demands a narrative of some sort, and that is a crucial distinction between story making and lived experience. I placed my brother's death at the center of a story, and then every memory became tied to and tainted by a narrative that ended that way. He carried me on my shoulders, he carried me on his shoulders when I was a little boy. I love that memory and it's mine, but I told it and now it's a little less mine and a little less real. So dealing with the emotional fallout. Um, 
back to Maggie Nelson in our panel. She said that the type of scrutiny needed to write about family for her um, in Jane, a murder, a book that she wrote, crosses into a territory that forces a reckoning that maybe nobody needed to have, and likened being a writer digging into painful family events to an epileptic being married to a strobe light artist. Since we are so intimately involved with our family narratives as part of that narrative, are we harming ourselves by applying the level of scrutiny needed to convey these things to a reader? How does the writing about family affect us emotionally? Just something to consider. In the end, um, despite all of this, uh, all of these kind of uh, roadblocks and things that you sh you should be thinking about and deciding how you want to deal with them, I do want to stress that the important thing is to write. Quote, if you sit down and worry about what is my family going to think about this, what is my mother going to think about this, that is too much of an impediment, says Jeanette Walls, author of the family memoir, The Glass Castle. Walls states that it's important to remember who she's writing for, the reader, not relatives. Some of those scenes that I thought were the roughest and most damaging, people came up to me and said, thank you so much for telling that story. I'm in a similar situation, and that story really helped me. And that's why we tell our stories. So, you know, it's a loss of one thing, but I, you gain something else. If worse comes to worse, you can purchase liability insurance for books now, <laughs> which protect you financially from a lawsuit. That is true. Uh, <laughs> um, David Stewart McLean, author of The Answer to the Riddle is Me, a memoir of amnesia, says, the risk becomes exaggerated as a way not to write. Just write it and then worry. Thanks. <laughs>